Welcome to the Progress Portland podcast. I'm Tim Halber. I'm Kip Silverman. We are joined today by Chad Likens, running in District 4. Uh, you're our first District 4 candidate. Yay. Happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. So tell me about District 4 to start. District 4 is all of the west side, so everything west of the Willamette, plus uh, Eastmoreland, Selwood, Reed, and Ardenwald. You had about 140,000 people west of the river, and so to make all the districts balance, somebody had to join up with the west side, and uh, Eastmoreland, Selwood, all of you, you're, you're the winners. <laughs> okay, and so uh, what do you think is the prevailing demographic? What makes it different than the other districts? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a diverse district, and I think that um, maybe the diversity is a little bit underappreciated over there. All along Barber, Markham, that school district, it's really interesting. There's a large Somali population, a large Muslim population. The west side, of course, has downtown and Old Town and all that area. It's also got some of our most beautiful hiking in Portland, so it's this great mix of, of nature. We've got the downtown business sector and all of their interest. We have a huge concentration of nonprofits doing terrific work. We also have almost all the institutions of higher education. We've got PSU and Reed and Lewis and Clark and PCC. Very cool. And, and and I think people don't talk enough about the vast diversity that does exist. I think most people think, oh, well, uh, very large houses, right? You know, <laughs> and, and very confusing streets. Uh, I'll attest to that. Um, what what inspired you to run? My background, I was born to two teenage parents in Huntsville, Alabama, and my dad lost both of his parents when he was very young, so he was very much on his own. And my mom had real big problems with substance abuse and uh, with mental health, which meant that our family was the kind of family that needed a lot of help. Some of that help we got, some of that we didn't. But we got enough for me and my siblings to be able to go through school, get higher education, and to find housing. And every step of the way, I needed help from a government program and also from people in my community. Um, so there's that real deep appreciation that came with me uh, of, of always wanting to make sure that those opportunities were still available. And if they had ever failed me in some way, that they didn't fail other people. So I ended up going and I studied public policy. And I was really focused on the education sector for a long time. Um, I think just because that connection with kids and with families, now I've used them the same skill set to look more broadly at other policy areas. Very cool. No, I really appreciate that. I appreciate how your website goes into some degree of detail in each of your policy platform issues. And other candidates out there, I highly recommend taking note. I appreciate seeing your thought process behind some of the challenges that we have and also linking to relevant information out there to kind of back up what you're focused on. To kick things off, is there a topic that you'd like to start with? I think maybe starting with housing makes a lot of sense. Um, that's really where I came to this race because it is the great unlock, I think, for so many other things. That if we get housing right, that goes a long way towards helping with transportation. It goes a long mm -hmm. way towards helping with climate change, with uh, homelessness. When you take care of homelessness, you do a lot to take care of the factors that drive people towards substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So with housing, I'm kind of coming to think about it in terms of what they call the three S's, which is supply, subsidy, and stabilization. I think for a lot of folks that work in the space, the big danger is, is working on one of those things without the other ones. And then that's where we get in the realm of unintended consequences. Where Portland has done a better job than many cities is with um, stabilization, with things like uh, rent controls and protecting tenants. Um, I think we're better than a lot of cities there. Not to say that we couldn't do more. Where we've really failed is with supply. And that's the big thing, is uh, underproducing housing, especially the kind of housing that people can afford. It's really hard to find a home in much of District 4. 
And that is something that we absolutely can do. And it's, it's this kind of thing that a city councilor can have an influence on, whereas there's a lot of social ills that are maybe outside of the scope of city council. So that's where we've spent a lot of time. And would you say that, I mean, not knowing, I'm a newcomer to Portland. I don't know if you were here for that part of the conversation. I've, I've been here about a year. Um, so I don't know District 4 all that well. Um, I'm hearing big houses. Is there pushback in the neighborhood to developing affordable housing or finding finding places to develop? I think in some neighborhoods there is. Um, and I think that there's a prevailing narrative about what a neighborhood association looks like and the kind of people that, that um, control those. Mm-hmm. And there is some truth that some neighborhood associations are controlled by sort of Yimby people who want to sort of put up a gate around their community. But that is certainly not true of all the neighborhood organizations, and some of them are fighting very hard to increase density to get more development. The The most exciting and biggest opportunity, which I, I hope we don't squander, is the Alpenrose development. Possibly the last really big space, other than the Lloyd Center, that um, has the capacity to have a whole lot of housing. It's been very difficult to get a clear picture as to what kind of homes they want to build there. I will say that neighborhood associations aren't super excited about seeing 300 detached single-family homes that start at $1.2 million. But when we talk to the friends of Alpenrose and the adjoining neighborhood associations like the Hayhurst Neighborhood Association, Maplewood, what they really want to see is something that looks more like a Rinko with different housing that meets different kinds of needs, with safe transportation, and a place to gather as a community, that kind of uh, mix of commercial and, and residential. It's not really clear that what the developer wants out of that, and so they have kept pushing them. So I, I actually think that our neighborhood associations, some of them are really forces for good here on this. It's funny for me to hear Orenco Station, because I studied urban planning. I worked for a group that was promoting transit-oriented development, and we came here. I actually brought a bunch of Orange County mayors to Portland, and we toured them around to uh, Beaverton and to Orenco Station to show them what good transit-oriented development looks like and to show them a place that had done development right. You know, this It was given to me in urban planning school that Portland was the dream. You know, This is the place that had, had done it right. So um, what, what happened in Portland that, <laughs> that, I mean, people have soured on planning on the city of Portland and politics. And, and what, what, do you, what do you feel like happened here in Portland uh, that, that changed the mood? I'm not sure. That's a really big question. Um, (laughs) I mean, we do see we've stalled or gone backward on people riding their bikes, transportation utilization. And part of that is reflective of national trends. But we sort of pride ourselves on being an outlier, right, of of being the leader on these things. And it's not clear that we are anymore. I think a big part of that is that right now it feels like an act of courage to ride your bike from southwest Portland to north Portland. It, it feels like an act of courage to, to walk your kid in many parts of District 4 to a bus stop where there's no sidewalk mm-hmm. and your kid is sitting there with cars whizzing by. Uh, and it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't feel like an act of courage to not get in a car. Um, and I think people are making rational choices about their own safety. Mm-hmm. So I am you know, hoping that this conversation, not just what we're having here, but the broader one, is not about individual choices and kind of bullying people into doing things that they don't feel safe doing, and more about investing in infrastructure. That's something that I, th- I think that the next city council will have to, to push PBOT for, investing a much more in making transportation safe, all forms of transportation. No, uh, yeah, uh, I appreciated how you went into that on, on your website. And, and I also appreciate how uh, at the outset of this, you connected all the threads on how one decision affects everything else. It's a really 
cohesive view of, of how much all of it matters. And you can't just address one piece without the next piece. But starting with housing, I, I remember the controversy about Alpenrose closing. I had not heard there's been discussions about redevelopment. So uh, it's just fascinating to even learn that. And I wonder why it's not big news because that's huge. That and Lloyd Center and Rose City Golf Course are the biggest parcel of lands that should be, in my very humble opinion, uh, reused for affordable, low-cost, no-cost housing because we need all of that. Um, wanted to ask about that a little bit. In 2020, we passed a residential infill project. And I voted against it because it seemed to address the need without guaranteeing it's going to solve any problems. And then in 2022, it looks like we, I just learned this when I was researching the infill project, they passed legislation that addressed some of the loopholes in it, uh, of the original legislation, and they called it RIP2, and RIP2 is not the greatest acronym. <laughs> I'm just going to start with that. Um, but I anecdotally have seen some of the effects of this. I've seen ADUs pop up and be rented out for $1,700 a month. Uh, my kids live on a side street off a division, which can be harrowing to bike. And there is uh, four attached townhomes that went in that are taking up every possible inch of that property. The infill project alleviated parking requirements mm -hmm. and allowed to do this dense building, which as far as I can tell, or as anyone can tell, we don't know what the cost of, if those are condos, if that's affordable. There's no tracking of any of this in, in a reasonable manner. And I, I mention all of this because I agree we need development and building. My concerns are that every time we get an easement to do so, the people taking advantage of it are still only profit motivated. Prosper Portland is mostly profit motivated, and we're not seeing the type of housing that we need to solve the problems that you started out with. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the specific one you're talking about, um, they put four units on it, right? Yeah, so I think pushing harder to upzone that so that it could be not just four units, but four floors, what Portland Neighbors Welcome is talking about as the four floors and corner stores. I would rather see 12 units there and say three or four of them are uh, earmarked as being affordable. And also developing not just along arterial corridors, but also on those secondary streets a block or two away. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of capacity there for upzoning because um, we've got upzone for a lot more housing. We are going to be a destination that people are going to be moving to. I know things look rough right now, mm -hmm. but um, things are going to look rough everywhere as yeah. uh, climate change uh, intensifies and people are going to be coming to Portland. So we need to prepare that and we need to get our zoning right so that it's possible to build. As far as the question about um, are we building the right kind of housing, there are two different thing ways we can approach it. We can use incentives and we can use mandates. And the incentives are really powerful when somebody's already doing something you want them to do and you want them to do more of it. So they're already going to build four houses in a place that there was just one. So how can we convince them to build a little bit more? And so mm -hmm. maybe we can uh, have system development charges waived to encourage that some of those are earmarked for affordable housing, or we can uh, expedite the permitting process or those kind of things. Incentives are, are easier to go for first because there's never the, the chance of the blowback of going, okay, they throw up their hands and they're just not going to build anything. Mandates also have a place, but there's always the risk with mandates that you get nothing built. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we see a lot in Portland. 
early in the campaign, I met with um, someone who I knew that works in affordable housing. He builds in 25 different states, uh, builds in Beaverton and Bend. And I said, you know, what does it take to get you to build more housing in Portland? And he just said, well, nothing. I will never, ever build housing in Portland because it was so hard. I mean, you can't wait two and three years and carry the interest on loans, Mm -hmm. um, the incredible uncertainty that comes with it of maybe nothing's going to get built. And we are competing now for contractors and subcontractors against other cities in the metro area and against uh, places all over the state and, and the region. We have to make Portland a place that people want to build, both nonprofit builders and for-profit builders. Mm-hmm. If we don't do that uh, in the urban core, then where's the housing going to go? And now we have to have horrible conversations that I don't want to have about expanding the urban growth boundary, paving right. over wetlands. All this place, it, it, they're bad for many reasons. They're bad for the climate reasons. They're also bad because they don't actually answer the crisis that we're in for housing. It would right. take many, many years to make those places ready for building versus we've got buildable land here. I think right. we have to use it. We have to work on height restrictions, upzoning, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really great conversation in the weeds and I want to take back out of the weeds <laughs> for a minute and ask you, you know, why are you doing this? Why do you want to be on city council? Before I got into policy, I was in philosophy there's a quote from William James, and it's just about how to live a significant life. Mm-hmm. And it was find a way to take the thing that makes you really happy privately, because that's the thing you're going to work hard on and be able to do sustainably for a lifetime and, and marry that with something that has some public benefit. And that's been sort of the arc of my career is finding a way to do that. You know, with city council, it's an opportunity to work on problems that mean a lot to me and that have influenced my life and my family's life with the change in the way the government's going to work. I'm actually really optimistic that we're going to get a working majority of city councilors that can focus on solving core problems with housing, substance abuse, mental health, transportation, climate, the things that matter the most to most people in Portland. And then the private thing is that this is just enormous fun. I absolutely have loved every minute of being on the campaign trail. I love the parts that I thought I was going to really not like. It was awkward at first to like, you know, do the fundraising where you're calling people that, you know, maybe just a little bit. But the way this election is running with a small donor election program, mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting to actually tell somebody that, hey, if you can chip in $20, then that becomes $200 for the campaign. And if enough of you do this, then you don't have to worry about independent expenditures and these $25,000 donations coming from the richest people in the area, that we can run a competitive campaign based on uh, values and ideas and competence <laughs> without having to compromise. Yeah. I mean, the small donor legislation was huge, right? It was a game changer. Allows what is happening now to have as many people running for city council to happen, which it would not have been able to. Let's go back into some weeds. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Weeds are good. (laughs) Go for it. it, It's the Tim and I push me, pull you. Not not too much weeds. Transportation, which you talked about, and it's a big part of, uh, of your platform. And like you said, making it accessible to people, making it safe, making it affordable, addressing the different forms of transportation. One of the things I've seen argued over the years is TriMet is expensive. It's not the most expensive, but it's hard for a lot of people to justify taking TriMet when it takes uh, an hour and a half to get somewhere when you can drive in 15 minutes. And the cost is about the same for parking or paying, you know, 250 each way or whatever it is these days. One idea has been to make TriMet free. And my understanding is a lot of their budget comes from grants and, and programs. And the fare system is a much smaller part of it 
not insubstantial, but making it free to make it more accessible, making streets more friendly to mass transit, routing cars to main thoroughfares, and making it safer to take alternative forms. I'd love your thoughts on how to make this a, a, a reality that people start using mass transit again. I haven't looked at TriMet's budget, um, and I, I don't know the condition of it and what the impact would be of um, waiving fares there, so I can't really comment on that. I am very concerned about Peabot's budget and how that's being used. One of the things that we put on our platform early on um, that I was excited because it's just like it's an easy fix to a problem that has come up not just once but but multiple times here just in the last couple of months um, mm -hmm. is uh, making it such that Peabot cannot remove infrastructure for pedestrians and cyclists before it is replaced with independently verified comparable infrastructure. So we saw that on the Southwest bike lane where thank goodness for Bike Portland and mm -hmm. Bike Cloud and Street Trust, they, they rallied and saved that. In Southwest Portland, there's concerns about the bike lanes and bus lanes that were installed in front of Ida B. Wells High School, where my son is a senior. There's pushback on those. They're not perfect, <laughs> but there's certainly an improvement in safety, um, mm. but there has been increased traffic. I think I may have gotten in the weeds again, like deep in the weeds on specific roads. That's fine. <laughs> we, we, we love wonkiness. Yeah. So number one, we, you know, we do have a lot of transportation uh, fatalities, uh, a record number, and a shocking uh, amount of those are homeless individuals. Like homeless people make up about 1% of the population and 45% yeah, or so uh, of the fatalities. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. It's, it's horrifying. Um, so the, the least fortunate among us are the ones that suffer the effects of poor planning the most. The other consequences of removing this infrastructure is that some of these things were so recently built that it jeopardizes our ability to actually compete for grants at the state and federal level. Mm. So if you get a federal or a state grant to put in a bike lane and then you remove it six months later, you probably don't get the next round of grants. So uh, when PBOT is in the hole by 31 or $32 million, and we're now jeopardizing future revenue streams, not to mention wasting money on these kind of projects, it's very, very worrisome. And I think that the next city council is going to be in a very tough spot because the last city council did not make any necessary changes to the way that Peabot is funded. Mm -hmm. There's only bad choices <laughs> on this and, right. and uh, you know, some kind of street utility fee or, or something's going to have to be the answer because right now Peabot is dependent on gas taxes. Gas tax revenue is going down and that's a good thing. We want people consuming less gasoline and parking fees. And if you want fewer people taking cars, more people taking TriMet, then that's going to be something that is probably not going to be reversed. We can do some things on dynamic pricing in certain neighborhoods that might make sense. Um, but the tolerance for that is pretty low among some people mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to show up, pull into a space and wonder, is it $6 this hour or is it $12? Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, while the literature on that is, is really strong and it's, it's worked in San Francisco, it's also not super clear that when you have a lot of things to do, that that's the hill you want to die on. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and you had mentioned on your website about expanding some of the parking zone hours to accommodate people going downtown to party Friday, Saturday night, which I don't know how much more money that would bring in, but it's a thoughtful way of doing that kind of additional revenue generation. But to, to your point, Peabot is struggling because city council hasn't changed how they're funded. And meanwhile, the end result of that is Portland will become less safe. And yeah. that's, that's not a, a reasonable outcome. I agree. I wanted to ask about the election, focusing on the election. You're in District 4. It's a district we haven't really talked about on the podcast yet. Um, I don't know who the who your competitors are or who we think is coming in. Um, and I know that, like at least in the other districts, there's there's been a lot of talk of 
camaraderie in it, like working together, finding uh, people with common interests on the slate and working working together to promote each other, lift all boats for the three spots in those districts. Is there anyone so far in District 4 that you're you're looking at working with or are looking at working against or and I, I see your uh, advisor over there giving you the eye I know this is a this is a tough question but uh, but do, are you seeing that collaboration being part of your approach so interestingly there's no one that I'm working against in district four um, there's no one that I've looked at and just been totally revolted by or anything <laughs> like that interestingly enough I've had a better chance to get to know the candidates in other districts um, they're the ones that I've seen at pro labor events the pro environment events um, the the events all centered around transportation safety and, and equity uh, it's kind of early in the race I feel like fewer people maybe have jumped into district four and the truth is I, I certainly do not want to be the um, only candidate that comes from district four that cares about transportation getting people access to treatment getting people in housing so uh, it, it is a it's gonna be a very interesting dynamic because you're gonna be wanting to support other people so that you can make a working majority. You can't be the only one coming out of there. Um, on the other hand, realizing that you've got to go get, you know, your votes as well. So I'm really looking forward to meeting people. We have sent out, you know, emails whenever somebody announces welcoming them to the campaign and saying we're excited to meet them. Kip mentioned it earlier. Uh, some of the candidates we don't know a lot about. We know their bios, but as far as like a platform, I think folks are still working on that. Yeah, it's definitely early on, but with as many candidates that are going to be out there uh, getting in early, taking advantage of matching funding and everything else. We wanted to start this in August because we saw people already emerging and we feel like the people who are out there earlier will have hopefully a better chance to be known. And uh, so we're glad you're here. Oddly enough, um, I think uh, as dialed in as I think I am with the new electoral maps and everything, it didn't really occur to me that whoever is in District 4 is also going to be represented downtown mm -hmm. and the businesses and the revitalization effort, maybe more directly than some of the other council people. What are your thoughts on, well, on revitalization in general? I'll throw you the large one. And the things that I'm really curious about when I first moved here, I realized, oh, downtown Portland's beautiful. No one lives here. Maybe that's why, right? Uh, and since the Pearl District has grown, I've been here 25 years. Um, and, and, but still, there's not a lot of folks that literally live downtown compared to the rest of the areas of Portland. We're not sure office buildings are going to be bouncing back anytime soon. What are your thoughts on making downtown Portland a more center of homes? Yeah, I... I love our downtown, and um, it's it's a precious place, and it's it's important to the whole city. It, it lifts the whole city up when it's functioning well. We have to think about how we're going to use those buildings and how we're going to use the space that doesn't have buildings on it, um, like parking garages, surface mm -hmm. surface lots, and this kind of thing. I think that there are a couple of different things that we're going to do. You're right; it's going to be housing, and that's going to be expensive. But in some of these like really large cities, you just don't the, the cost of keeping a building. 70% uh, vacant is so prohibitive that um, those buildings get redeveloped real quick. And so I think we need to use a combination of carrots and sticks to um, incentivize uh, building owners to uh, repurpose those to their, a higher and better use um, when, when possible. And uh, I think that's a case-by-case -case basis. I don't know that that's a, a broad policy thing, mm -hmm. but looking for opportunities to turn 
um, uh, to get more homes there. I think when you have more people living in a place, it just has this huge lift. Uh, the small businesses downtown are struggling. Yeah. It is so hard. And a lot of it is a perception issue. If you go to the Park Blocks district and, and you're looking around, let's say that it's empty except for six people who uh, all look like they're probably suffering from addiction and probably don't have a place to live. Now you think this is a city under distress. All right. If those same six people are there, but also 600 people <laughs> that are gathered there for uh, art in the park or, or something, then you see a thriving city. S- same amount of problems, same need to be addressed, mm. but the perception is very different. So um, we've got an arts and culture um, uh, section of our platform, and we really feel strongly that that is mm-hmm. a... Um, important part to bringing back downtown and not just downtown, but that this is all the districts need to have this. Um, one, uh, exciting thing, it, it, one exciting thing about having a substantive platform and, uh, I'm a first time candidate. I shouldn't be giving advice to anybody else because <laughs> I've never won anything uh, like this, but have a platform because then people reach out to you and, and they say, Hey, how can I help? So, um, we had, a, we're able to meet with people from uh, kickstand comedy and from the Portland area theater Alliance uh, and, and uh, they're going to be putting on a PATA, um, an event that's kind of like a little mini local version of Edinburgh's Fringe Festival, which was something that, awesome. that I really wanted to see. And they've, it's going to happen in spring. They're bringing it back. It used to happen a few years ago, and, and now it's coming back. Um, growing that into something that, that pulls people, the whole community together, and pulls people from outside, the economic impact is massive. Um, so I think, you know, you get those eyes... Um, on the street, kickstand comedy. You know, reason I really wanted mm-hmm. to talk to, to Dylan there is because what they did in Laurelhurst was extraordinary, and for so little money. When you talk about investing in the arts, you're talking in the tens of thousands of dollars, uh, and then you, the impact's extraordinary. They would like more, and, and I, I think they should get more. But it doesn't take much to put on an, an amazing event. You know, they're getting thousands of people to come uh, to a park. Laurelhurst was really struggling. Mm-hmm. It, it was rough, and. Um, this gets people used to coming, and, and they, they come back. Um, so I think both having something to do downtown <laughs> yeah. is good, and having places to live downtown, those are going to be um, the two big things. Yeah. Um, the the office workers aren't coming back. Yeah. And you know, if, if you look, the reason I know that they're not coming back is because um, look at Nike. Mm-hmm. The Nike campus is one of the most. It's more beautiful than ninety nine percent of college campuses. There are there is a a world-class running track. There is a bark chipped trail running pad. There's the woods you can go to. You can get a massage there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, loads of great cafeterias that, that are inexpensive, artwork, all this stuff. And no one wants to go back to Nike to work. All their people, it is, they are fighting a war over getting people to come back to that campus. So then you say, come downtown uh, at its moment of greatest weakness now and come back to work. That's a big lift to ask people. No one wants to do that. So I, I think we have to have another strategy for no. revitalizing it. No, uh, true. I, I mean, the short time that I did work downtown, funny enough, in City Hall briefly, it was cost prohibitive. Mm. It would have taken me too long to take mass transit from where I was living in North Portland. Just the parking alone was stupidly expensive. I love the things you're talking about I want to bounce back to something you mentioned earlier, neighborhood associations. Things were really strong seven, eight years ago. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about revitalizing neighborhood associations and what that means in a representative government in Portland and what that looks like and wondering your thoughts. 
And I'm going to piggyback on that question because from what I've heard, a lot of the neighborhood associations are a little afraid they'll become irrelevant in this district representation. Yeah, I, I don't think that they're going to become irrelevant. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly where their channels for um, having access to city council are, are going to be. Uh, it should be a lot stronger because you're going to have three people uh, who represent your district. Currently, it's pretty it's pretty tough to get a city councilor to listen mm -hmm. uh, to a problem in your neighborhood because they may not live in your neighborhood, right? So I, I think there should be fewer excuses for not being able to have somebody that, that will listen to you. I think that people, especially in District 4 that live uh, east of Willamette, have some real justified concerns, um, especially because they're part of Southeast Uplift. And um, what that looks like now that they're part of District 4, and it, it could be some adjustment. I don't have the answer as to what that should look like. I think that answer is going to have to be made in collaboration with the neighborhood organizations. I think they have so much potential for good here. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of that potential can be unlocked, especially if we can get them to look a little bit more like the neighborhoods they represent. They don't always uh, have the same number of, say, renters or mm -hmm. the same diversity of, of kinds of families that um, are, are in that area. And and if you go talk to them about it, they most of them are self-aware and, and a little bit you know, self-conscious about it. They, they want to be more representative. So maybe having them work together to, to come up with some solutions there so that those neighborhood organizations do represent the neighborhoods a little bit better. I wanted to back up because you, you're the first person I've uh, we've spoken with who's talked about arts and culture. And uh, I want to commend you for, for thinking about that. Because I, I worked for a, an organization called Art Place for a while that was about uh, transit-oriented development and art and like how arts and culture can drive neighborhoods and revitalize areas. Um, you look at like somebody like how Dale Chihuly, what he's done for Seattle. Like you know, there, there are ways that like if you create centers of arts and culture, it rises all boats. Everything in that neighborhood can can rise. It's difficult to do it right, and it's it's also usually only homegrown, right? You can't you can't fake it. Yeah, I totally agree. And so, like, I had the you know idea like Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but in Portland. And then when uh, uh, Portland Area Theater Alliance says, "Well, we're kind of doing that," but that that's the whole idea is that being willing to be a little bit wrong. And 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 if they've got an organic thing that has some history. Let's add fuel to that and, and do what we can to support it. Again, the investment isn't an extraordinary amount compared to the economic impact. Yep. I mean, we are such a rich town in arts and, and culture. If you think about like literary arts, is an extraordinary organization. They bring thousands of people mm -hmm. downtown, even now, they bring thousands of people downtown to listen to a poet mm -hmm. or a historian. And, and, and they are treated like rock stars in Portland. It's the largest speaker series of authors in the country. It's just amazing. We have Powell's books. We have uh, Annie Bloom's books. We have Broadway books. We have so many amazing bookstores in the city. The creative community. They're, they're some of the people that also need workforce housing. These issues end up hanging together. If you want to support arts and culture, you have to be a city that has the venues, has the opportunity. And it sounds like we do have some spaces that, that could be candidates downtown. And also has the kind of housing that artists can afford. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts, opinion about the current row between RAC and the Portland City direction of ending the contract with regional arts? I think it's a big opportunity to, to rethink how we're spending it. I haven't gotten into the details of it, and I did go to the District 4 Arts Talk that Dan Ryan led, and there were a lot of leaders of arts organizations there that were very anxious of saying, where is my money going to come from next right. year? So um, I, I went because, you know, 
there's a chance that I'm going to win the election and, and uh, need to be able that, to make sure that transition is very smooth. Mm-hmm. So it's this delicate thing of preparing to do the work so that on day one, you're ready and, and you've been part of some of these conversations. Um, and, and also building the relationship so that people feel like, you know, if money is a couple weeks late coming out, they know who to call and, and that, you know, you can look into it for them. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the most important things that I'd like to see the current city council doing is make sure the transition is as smooth as possible. Make sure that things that are going to potentially or likely survive them uh, being in office actually has a connection to the next city council and setting them up for success. Um, I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of that, but I think all of the current people running should encourage that greatly. The big argument they just had uh, two weeks ago about whether or not they're going to vacate City Hall to make room for whatever renovations are being planned and them voting, no, we want to stay here because that'll help us work better. And then saying, oh, we're also not going to have any more in-person City Council meetings seemed like a really strange, I'm being very judgmental, and that's intentional, dichotomy of can are are you thinking about your constituents and what it's going to look like post your tenure and i don't see a lot of that and you don't have to agree or disagree with me but um i i really think what you're talking about is really critical that that there's some continuity between the current methods and what we're doing and what we're going to be doing in 2025 and set it all up for success and I know not all of the current candidates can be mayor, I'm told. So, <laughs> yeah, I or city council. Yeah, yeah, I, I do feel like these were decisions that were a distraction for the city council. Um, and you know, when we're spending more time talking about office renovations than talking about fentanyl or <laughs> affordable housing, it's very frustrating um, as a as a citizen to to see that. You know, it's going to be tough. And I, I, I mentally am preparing for all eventualities that day one, we might walk into a place and there's nowhere to sit down (laughs) (laughs) because uh, we lost the contractor because we uh, decided not to build in January, decided to wait till June. And that maybe the different bureaus haven't been stood up with new administrators. I have no idea what we're going to walk into. And so mentally, we've got to be ready to walk into what is a disaster, the worst case scenario, or the city council and the mayor work together and we're walking in and things have been going for 90 days. And you know, the, the, a lot of the kinks have been worked out. We step in and, and start doing our job. It could go either way. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Well, here's hoping it's, it's a smooth transition. I really hope so. And I am not, you know, looking to dunk on uh, current city council or the mayor for how they're doing this, because I don't think it's going to make any bit of difference. What I say at this point, I'm going to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Seems like on, a, on that point. note, I think we've kept you long enough. Is there anything before we wrap up that uh, you feel like we didn't cover in terms of, of issue areas you're interested in or the election? Well, you know, one area that we didn't talk very much about at all was um, addiction and substance abuse mm. um, and, and what we're going to do about that. I was talking with somebody and they were asking if I was like more moderate or more progressive about this. And I was like, that, that's like ask your, your surgeon, are you a moderate or progressive about like ACL tears? These are, it's like, it's a fundamental category mistake of of, of how to think about this. What Mm -hmm. we need to be thinking about is evidence-based approaches to substance abuse and addiction. That is something that I am hoping that all the candidates that are running now, I hope that we have a very rich 
continuous debate about what does the evidence say here. I've sort of fashioned myself as the evidence-based candidate, but sometimes the evidence is difficult and incomplete, and we have to have um, discussions with each other about it. We have to talk with the people who have the most expertise and the people that are the most affected. Mm-hmm. Those are the two people we need to be listening to, mm-hmm. not who is the richest and the most powerful because they don't know how to solve their own problems. And it is a big problem. I understand and I sympathize with people who um, see this as a personal inconvenience mm-hmm. and as a lifestyle issue. It is. It has seriously degraded our lifestyle. But if we don't follow the best evidence, then you know, whether you're moderate or progressive or conservative, the problems aren't going to be solved. 100%. And to that end, we've heard... Uh, I won't call anybody out specifically, but current leadership saying expertise isn't needed here. We need action. And that was mind-blowingly bad opinion. We're not so unique in Portland that we can't look at what has worked elsewhere and work with the experts on the ground and come up with good solutions. So I really appreciate that. Before we end, tell us how to find you and how people can support you. Thank you. The website is likensforportland.com. My name is spelled L-Y-K-I-N-S, and it's the, the word for, F-O-R. And you can also find me on social media, likens4pdx, and we look forward to meeting lots more people. And we're not uh, scared about traveling outside of our district. We do it all the time to, to talk to experts and people that have useful things to say. Thank you to both uh, so much for running this podcast and for having me on. Yeah, we're Thank really you. glad you're here. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been the Progress Portland Podcast. Our theme music is The Acrobats by the Portland band Helvetia. Please join us next time.